0: You're listening to the pulpit ministry of north life baptist church with pastor harley Snowd. at north life baptist church our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving god growing together and serving others if you would like more information about our church please visit our website at www.northlife.church now stay tuned for today's message we'll take your bible this morning and turn to john chapter 11 John chapter 11, and I hope that uh, you're. if you do know Christ as Savior today, you just can't get over the fact you're a child of God. That is unbelievable, and the analogy of that last song is the Israelites going through the sea, and uh, God drowns all of those, uh, the slavery and the bondage frees his people, and it leads them toward the promised land. John chapter 11 today. Just a couple of things of note. First of all, it's good to see the young blood running our sound booth today. Pastor Dave is on vacation, so we've got Ian at the helm of our live stream. So if you can see me right now, you can thank him, or if not, you can blame him. Maybe you would thank him because you can't see me. That might be a better uh, option or angle on that. And then Titus at the helm with our soundboard. Love to see our young people serving. Uh, number two... Uh, no offense, but I probably won't shake your hand today. We've had one of those weeks. Some of you have as well. Maybe we should even make that the policy today. A lot of us have just had, I don't know what we've had this last week or two, but just a little bit of crud, as we would say, or whatever. But uh, probably won't shake your hand uh, today. And uh, But uh, good to see you this morning. And then secondly, um, you should have received invites to uh, pass out. They're not for you to keep uh, and sit token in your car, Uh, or in your Bible for the next couple of weeks, they're for you to invite people. Several of you have shared folks you've invited. So I hope you'll take advantage of that and uh, just pass that out. Again, no one's offended when you value something you're a part of enough to invite them to be a part of it. Um, If they are, tell me. That'll be the exception, okay? Typically, uh, if you do it with the right spirit, folks, uh, at least thank you for that. So I hope you'll take advantage of that as we have just a couple weeks left. Hopefully, uh, for the kiddos, it's not like today for our egg hunt in a few weeks. And we'll pray to that end, but I appreciate you being here today. John chapter 11, let's look at verse 23 down through verse uh, 26. I may sneeze a few more times or cough a few more times, maybe a bit of a snotty sermon as I've said before, but uh, we'll do our best with the Lord's help to get through um, this privilege to open his word again today. John chapter 11, let's begin in verse 23. Jesus enters into the mourning of Martha and Mary and the loss of their brother Lazarus. In verse 23, Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, think about this, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever, verse 26, liveth and believeth in me shall never die, believest thou this. And so we've been looking at in our series different snapshots of Jesus that John is the closest to Christ, likely as a disciple, gives us of Jesus to help us draw closer to him. And today we want to look at this aspect, Jesus as the life, Jesus as the life. This kind of is just a preview of Easter. This is fun to preach today and I hope that it'll encourage us as we anticipate this season. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the joy it is to be here today. Lord, I know that there are a lot of um, things in hearts and minds as as they came, as each of these dear folks came into this room today, that weigh them down and and often our burdens, the what-ifs or the the real and and present challenges in their life. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to allow you to access us where we are today as we own our grief, our sorrow, our despair of even life itself at, at times and at seasons And Lord, we'd be willing to believe anew and afresh as you remind Mary and Martha that, Lord, you are the resurrection and the life. And Lord, the resurrection is not just some out there in the distance in some eternal significant way. Uh, The life that you offer is to be close in proximity and in reality today. And I pray, Father, that you would convince us where we doubt this power that you possess of life itself the renewal of life, the restoration of life, the the beginning of eternal life, if we'll receive you as Savior. Pray that you would convince us anew and afresh of the power that you possess over death, hell, and the grave. And uh, Lord, may it be the beginning of our, uh, just a a preview of, Lord, this Easter season as reminded that you are the resurrection, you are the life. Bless this study, be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you remember last Sunday, every detail of my sermon, probably the only thing you remember is the illustrations. I don't know if you remember the illustration I led with last week, um, Brother Studer, uh, Heath had shared about his mug. Remember that? How I was talking about coffee, the mug of your coffee matters. I don't know why it does, but it was. And his said, Mr. Wright, I saw Miss Tony on Sunday night and she said, there is more to the story. I said, oh, I know there's more to the story. There always is. Us guys are very selective in what we share. So she sent me a picture um, that also is the same picture. Brother Heath finally got the courage to send me yesterday, I think. And here is the matching uh, mug to the set that the Studers own. So you (laughs) you have Mr. Right, but you also have Mrs. Always Right. And so Heath Tony sent this to me last Sunday night, and then Heath, as I mentioned, sent it to me finally yesterday or Friday, whatever the day was. And uh, he put in his text this. Okay, to be honest, here's the other matching mug to the set. And this was him. Was this Friday or Saturday? Was this yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. He he will come to the altar in just a moment, and we all watch him. Uh, but he said this. I, this is hilarious. He said, I'm using this one today to keep it out of her hands. He's. And I don't know, is that is that a well-played move or not? Because Heath is holding... A mug that says, Miss is always right. I don't know, but the, the, so pray for the students. They have, uh, pray for Tony specifically, but I couldn't resist sharing that after last week. But can I just say this as you look at the mug, that second word always is a, is a craving that we all have. Um, Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in our hearts. There's a craving for that which is transcendent, that which is not bound to time and space. Can I just tell you today that desire for the always, that we will always be, that death itself will not be the end of who we are, uh, can only be found from God, who alone can offer it through His Son. He's the only one that gives us the always kind of things, gifts and realities and breakthroughs with God. And, And so I want us to think about today where maybe we're looking to other things for life and even eternality that cannot be divorced from the person In presence of Jesus Christ. I was reading an article the other day uh, about a gentleman named Jeff Bezos. Maybe you've heard of him. He would be known as, I think right now he is currently the second richest man behind Elon Musk, but his claim to fame is Amazon. And many of us supported Amazon rather faithfully this past week um, as maybe packages were delivered to our home. But Jeff Bezos, just (laughs) the other day, there was an article written, I've heard of it in the past, is said to be one of the investors in a well-funded Silicon Valley startup recruiting some of the world's top genetic scientists to discover the secrets of eternal life. And he has invested to date over $200 million, I think, toward this Altos is the name of the organization um, to try to discover how to prolong life or how to discover eternal life. Isn't it funny how it's just the same thing over and over? We've read in the past of this, and even ancient civilizations seeking the secret to eternal life. Now here's the thought today before we look at the text. I would guarantee that the main beneficiaries of the investment of Jeff Bezos is primarily for himself. He's 57 years of age. What I love about Jesus is Jesus offers us eternal life that is for our benefit. He already, he just is. He's the I am. We've been talking about that in the Gospel of John. Jesus offers to us eternal life. He's not trying to buy it or get a corner on the market, if you will, as it relates to eternal life. He offers it to us freely if we simply will trust in him. Key statement as we begin today, to be a follower of Jesus, listen to me, is to be progressively losing your fear of death and to be progressively experiencing more fully alive. That's the reality of walking with Jesus. And so here's my loving, maybe just challenge to you today. If that's not happening, listen to me, you are not as close to Jesus as you think you are. Sincerely, even so. Those who are close to Jesus don't fear death. Yeah, there's a healthy sense of I want to live and I want to thrive and I want to see my great grandbabies or whatever the case may be. But as we grow closer to him, the one who is life, death doesn't cast as long a shadow. And there's an experience of a dynamic, growing exuberance that defies our body trends and our mind trends and our world's trends. We're more alive every day because we're associated with Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And so we enter now John chapter 11, which is really the last great miracle of Jesus before his crucifixion and the burial and resurrection of our Savior Uh, And in some senses, this may be, I would submit to you, possibly and likely is his greatest miracle um, that presents tangibly his power over death itself. And so Lazarus, this dear friend of Christ, lived in a little village of Bethany, about two miles to the east of Jerusalem. Here is where we see this resurrection power of Jesus brought to bear uh, in this man's life. Now, what's interesting is, and maybe make a note of this, and when you're reading through John the next time, you can note this, in John's gospel alone, he uses the word life 36 times. It is a a leading uh, word in the vocabulary of John, the life, the life, the life. And so we see all of the book, not just John 11, replete with this word and reality of life through Jesus. And so the question today is, in a day where death and fear of it seem to control so much of our lives, how do we instead follow a Jesus who is the author and the restorer of real living? Let's talk about today two life-giving characteristics of Jesus that produce in us greater intimacy with Him and with His Father. Number one, let's talk for a few minutes, first of all, about the life that Christ offers that often requires delays. Let's go back now to the beginning of the chapter, and we don't have time to read all of this chapter. All of it is is rich and and deep, there's much there, but just as we kind of sample some of the verses to get the picture of the story today, you will notice early on that this life that Jesus is going to give first begins with delay. Um, And I find it ironic that I chose this illustration today with the weather outside. Somebody said, this is how time passes in the Midwest, (laughs) the pie graph. December, January, February, March, May, June, July, August, and then we're back to the long months again. Is that, does that capture the vibe? It's all, I, for me, literally, I, okay, it's spring. We got to absorb it because very soon, even today, this is a win compared to maybe sometime later this year, uh, but it's such a quick thing. Can I tell you often as it relates to the January, February moments of life, that Jesus is just as present in those prolonged, delayed kind of feeling moments as He is the quick breakthroughs and the quick progress that maybe now and then we as well experience with Him. Life that delays. All right, go back to verse 3, and let's talk about a couple things about this life that Jesus offers that gives to us, uh, it is preloaded with delays before the breakthroughs. Look, if you will, here in verse three and following, and jot down, first of all, there in your notes, draw closer to Jesus' loving delay. So Jesus, who is life, makes us wait, and he does so with love. His motivation is not to mess with us. It's not to just string us along, as we would say. He lovingly causes us to delay. Look at verse three. Therefore, his sisters, all right, Lazarus is sick, sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And so we see Jesus uh, reminded of his loving relationship with Lazarus. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. All right, number one underneath of that, jot down, first of all, there's a loving purpose to these waiting periods where we want the life to show up and to resurrect something or to heal someone, and and yet he makes us wait because there is a loving purpose behind that delay. In verse 4, notice Christ does not mean that Lazarus would not die. In just a moment, he's going to say that very directly, but that the end of it was not death. That was just a part of the process, that the final outcome would be the glory of God, that Jesus Christ himself would be glorified through the waiting and then the resurrecting that would occur. Verse 5, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and love that John adds that, almost just to say, not only does Mary and Martha think that Jesus loves Lazarus, but here the narrator reminds us that he truly did care for them. Verse 5, as we just read there, notice this love for them that that involved and was going to use the sickness and even the death for uh, his greater purpose. I know for me, when God makes me wait, I often question his love for me. Do you ever battle that? God, if you love me, you would have already caused this to be resolved or this breakthrough to come that I'm waiting upon. You know, here the narrator and God himself is reminding us that waiting has loving purpose. Verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, Here's now the big delay. He abode two days, still in the same place where he was. Now, I don't know about you, at the end of verse 5, I would have thought in verse 6, Jesus. Dro- here's what I think verse 6 probably would include. If he loved Lazarus, he dropped everything and sprinted to Bethany to try to intersect this man who was on the, the fence and tipping point of dying, and, and yet Jesus, doesn't that almost rub us the wrong way as we read it. He waited two more days. This delay with loving purpose. They remind us today God's delays are not always his his denials. If our prayers are not answered immediately, perhaps he's teaching us to wait. That's one purpose, but also because what he wants to do requires time. It, 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 there's a process that needs to be worked out. And what will happen if we wait will supersede our best case scenario if God had moved immediately. And so Jesus stays where he's at. If the one who alone is the life makes us wait, listen to me, it is always with divine purpose. That helps me. Because there's things I'm waiting on and probably you are as well. God has a purpose in that. Just let that, that statement just wash over you. Whatever you're waiting on God for, if he's at the helm of your life and he's saying, I want you to wait, it's not senseless, it's not purposeless, it's not random. It is with purpose that God who loves us makes us wait. And so don't allow that waiting period to cause you to question his love. Begin to, to imagine and anticipate what he will do in his time and way. All right, go to verse seven. And we see a second quick Uh, evidence of his love. Verse 7, Then after that he saith to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late, just recently sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. Verse 10, But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Number two, secondly, not only a loving purpose, Number two, a loving revelation. God often, this is key, loving revelation, God often reveals stuff to us or things about himself that only happen when there is a gap between the ask or the need and God delivering. It's in that margin, it's in that in-between season that we see God and sense God and know from God things that otherwise we would not experience. I mentioned that the Cottoners are on vacation this week. Um, and, uh, Brandy posted this just recently, Matt, Maddie, Matthew, their youngest, uh, not their youngest, sick. He's six. All right. Um, he, he was talking to his mom and his family said, let me tell you something about me. Okay. And then he wanted to give, and they're waiting for some deep revelation of Matthew who's six, something deep about who he is as a person. And he said, you can call me chicken nugget. (laughs) That, that was the. He just bared his soul. I am okay with that. You can call me Chicken Nugget. Don't you love kids, just the stuff that they, you're like, where in the world did that come from? And I was mad at some point as well, the things that often I would say as well, just revealing something about ourselves. If I called you Chicken Nugget or you called me Chicken Nugget, you'd be like, uh, we are tight, but not that tight, okay? <laughs> Pet name, Chicken Nugget. Uh, can I just encourage you that the story, John chapter 11, is not about Lazarus. John chapter 11 is not about Mary, it's not about Martha. It is about Jesus Christ. And if we can understand that not just John 11, but every chapter of our lives besides John 11 are places where Jesus wants to reveal himself, then we don't see the waiting as senseless. Because all we want to see is what we want done accomplished or what we want resolved removed. When Jesus is trying to reveal himself to us and through us, to those that we impact. And so he loves us enough to make us wait to reveal himself to us. The disciples here needed to see more of Jesus that they only could see, listen to me, if Lazarus died. And these men who would one day be willing to die for Jesus Christ, including Peter, hanged upside down on a cross, not feeling worthy to be killed in the same way as his Lord and Savior, their willingness to die for this this Savior partly was framed and formed by the moment that was about to occur. And so this revelation of Jesus that only happens in the waiting periods. And in verses 9 and 10, I don't know if you understood those as we read through those, but basically Jesus is saying, I'm not stumbling and fumbling my way forward. I'm following the will of the Father. And what I'm waiting on is for God to tell me, specifically the Father, to tell me to go to Bethany. I'm waiting on His cue, not the need, not the crisis, as perceived by others. He was willing to wait on the Father, and so revealing to us his desire to please the Lord. In contrast, verse 10, the one who just fumbles and stumbles his way through life and not following the will of the Father, uh, we see where that leads. There is no light in him. I love the statement by Henry Martin, the missionary. He said this, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. And so there's no fear of death if we're walking in step with the Lord. There's no fear of of anything happening while we wait on the Lord because he is in control. We are simply following his cues. Verse 11, I love these next couple of verses. These things said he after that he had said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Uh, And so the Lord reveals that he knows that Lazarus has died here. Now the disciples are not tracking with him yet. They will in just a moment but it reveals the omniscience of Jesus Christ. It reveals his deity. Uh, It also shows that he will wake him out of sleep. Only God would know that Lazarus had already died without someone telling him. And number two, only God would audaciously say, in truth, I'm going to awaken him. I'm going to bring him back from the dead. Verse 12. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. John's filling in the gaps for us. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, notice this, plainly, Lazarus is dead. And so we see this this revelation of what Jesus is about to do. Verse 15, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the extent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And so we see this reminder of the purpose of this was to reveal Jesus to them. Often in our lives, we go through seasons where we only see the crisis or the circumstance instead of what is God trying to do. And if I don't even see it, am I willing to trust God to work out this plan and purpose his way in his timing? Now, let me give you just a quick summary of why Jesus waited. This is, just, this is not in the scripture, but at least gives us some things to chew on. And whether this is exactly the case or not, this may help us understand. So the messenger leaves to tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick. Typically, it was a one-day one day journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. So they would travel by foot. So the messenger likely, if Lazarus, as we're going to read in just a moment, is four days dead, likely he died shortly after the messenger was dispersed. Because then Jesus is saying, Lazarus already sleeps. Then he waits two days and then travels to Bethany. There's the four days, right? So one day for the messenger to get there. Lazarus shortly probably died after the messenger was sent from Mary and Martha. Two days, Jesus waits. Now the fourth day Jesus comes after that day's journey to Bethany. Why did Jesus wait for two days? What's the significance of that? Um, Isn't dead still dead? Why did Jesus not leave immediately after knowing Lazarus was dead? What was the purpose of that period of waiting? Um, I was reading an article, and I think based on the background of the article, I think the author is on good foundation here, Think about the Palestinian environment, a very uh, damp, moist, uh, arid culture where the decomposition, I don't want to be too unkind about this today, but the decomposition of a body would happen rather quickly. Embalming wasn't a thing. Um, Unless you were very affluent, that was a lengthy process. We see nowhere that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were described as such. And so typically within 24 hours, that body is buried um, just because of the obvious Uh, effects of that that climate. And because there was no embalming, the article said no embalming and no medical practitioners of of that sort that are then needed to declare a person dead as they are today with autopsies um, in our setting. Occasionally what would happen in this culture was the heart would start fibrillating. Um, This breathing then would become so shallow that you couldn't detect it. And so sometimes they would actually mistake someone as being deceased that was not Um, and I've read uh, stories of this in in days gone by, where as the people are being carried uh, to the grave, suddenly they wake up, they, they revive. And so the thinking in the first century and even in Jewish thinking was that typically when a person would die, that for two days that the spirit would stay connected to the body or close in proximity to the body. And so I believe, to submit to you directly, I think Jesus waited to make sure it was unmistakably true, not that Jesus believed that thinking of the soul and spirit, we believe absent from the body, present with the Lord, but he made sure it had been long enough in the King James, our Bible says, he stinketh. He waited long enough that there was no discrepancy that he brought a dead man who was decomposing back to life. Could it be today that God is waiting in your life to do something because He wants to make it unmistakably clear that God did it? Did something that no one else could do? There's no reasoning, there's no logical way this could have been brought to bear. The resurrection power of Jesus, He's waiting for the setup of that which He is about to bring to pass. And so when we see waiting, we often see senseless time passing. Uh, May I submit to you, God instead sees it as a setup to his perfect plan and purpose, the one who loves you. Listen, God never wastes pain, and he never wastes time. Every second is precisely a part of his purpose. Do you believe that today? Do I believe that today as I wait on the unresolved things in my life, and as you do the same? God does not waste pain. God does not waste time. Where are you allowing the delays to allow you to question his love, Instead of looking for his purposeful revelation, what's he wanting to do? What's he wanting to show you if you would just sweetly wait upon this one who cares for you? All right, go to verse 18 now. Now Bethany was, hot, was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house Number two, jot this down, draw closer to Jesus' empathetic delay, his empathetic delay, his empathy. Draw closer to a Jesus while making us wait has empathy for us. Um, a friend of mine posted a picture the other day of her husband who is probably um, late 60s sitting in his living room in uh, his chair, you know, the guy chair in the house as we all have. Um, watching Toy Story by himself. And he has a smile on his face. And she put this little caption beside it, Grandbabies have been gone for 30 minutes, and I find Pappy here finishing out the end of Toy Story. (laughs) So he watched the last 30 minutes all by himself. And she caught a picture of him smiling at one of the tear-jerking, moving moments of the end of the Toy Story movie. I find that hilarious. Aren't you thankful? that God can come down to our level? I think often when we are in a waiting period, we feel like God's tracking here and we're stuck down here. And there's a great disparity. And in that, that disparity of what we're struggling with and waiting on, that God doesn't care. When nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and so when God makes us wait, He feels what we feel. He knows what we know. He cares for us deeply even during that season of waiting. And the tendency when God makes us wait uh, is to believe he could care less about how it makes us feel when nothing again could be further from the truth. So notice two things about Jesus that convey empathy. And again, we're just going to bounce through a couple of verses. We don't have time to read all of these. But first of all, number one, jot this down. We see Jesus having empathetic ears. He was willing to listen in the place in which Mary and Martha were he was willing to listen. I have found, and many of you who've been through seasons of grief or are still working through those, as often is the case, that a listening ear, right? Just someone willing to listen, that in and of itself is comfort. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're trying to comfort someone who is grieving, stop talking. <laughs> just, just listen. And if they don't even say anything, just be there with them. In Jesus, we see him clearly being able to do this. Look in verse 21, just a couple examples of this. Then said Martha, as I just read, unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. He's willing to hear Martha. Martha, who probably didn't say that in a calm voice. She may have said it in a fatigued voice, but maybe almost a uh, a, a hardness there, a struggle as she worked through this grief that she had as Martha. Martha was always moving. We know that earlier in the story as she was busy serving and Mary was at the feet of Jesus, but Martha is the first to meet him with this question and really a, maybe almost an accusation. The tone here as she struggles with what Jesus has made her wait upon. Verse 32. Oh, before we get to that, notice she says, If. Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You know the tendency is to go through scenarios, if God had done this, then this would have happened. you catch yourself doing that? If God had done this, then this would not have happened. If God would have done this, then this would have happened. Do we really know that as a fact? Um, if they'd had this medicine, if, if this had changed on this day, then this. we're, we're playing God in those moments just trust him and yield to him. And so I think Martha here is working through that. When Jesus could have easily stayed in Jerusalem and healed Lazarus from Jerusalem, did he really need to be in Bethany? No. And so wrapping her mind and Jesus just listens to that and helps her process that as he gives ear to her grief. Verse 32, but when Mary was come, so first he listens to Martha. Number two, then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, She fell down at his feet. I don't know if that was in worship or grief or a mixture of both. She's always found found at the feet of Christ, saying unto him, Lord, again, here it is, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. And so the sisters had probably talked about this at length in the midst of their grief. She also utters the same regret. And then a third group or category of people that Jesus gives ear to, verse 37, and some of them said, could not. This man, which opened the eyes of the blind, some of these in Bethany had seen this miracle prior that we studied a few chapters ago, have caused even this man should not have died. And so he listens to those who question his motives and maybe question his intentions toward this family he claimed to care about. And so empathetic ears. Um, I heard this question the other day. I've yet to implement it in my counseling, but it was an aha moment. I hope it's something at some point I can ask of another Someone recommended to us counselors this question as we're trying to help folks who are grieving and reeling from whatever they're navigating. Here was the question. Is there some small piece of sadness that I can hold for you today? That's a great, great question. Is there some small piece of sadness that I can just hold for you today? There's a Jesus who asks that question of us every day. And the tendency is when we're waiting on him and we're wondering why this went the way it went, we're resenting and pushing away from the very one who could carry more than just a small piece of our sadness, our loneliness, our grief, our anger, whatever the specific thing may be. He wants to hear us. And so may I encourage you, are you praying to him? Are you talking to him? Uh, Are you giving to him the burdens that press in upon you? He longs to hear from you today. And so with all that Jesus knew he was about to say and the resurrection effects of those words, who should do the talking in John chapter 11, if anybody? Jesus, the one who's about to call the dead from the grave. He knew what he was about to do, and yet he took time before he spoke to listen. That indicates great love. That indicates great empathy on the part of Jesus Christ. All right, then go, if you will, to verse 33. We see a second evidence of his empathy. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping... And the Jews also weeping, which came with her. He groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Verse uh, 34, and said, where have you laid him? We'll come back to this verse. They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Number two, we see empathetic eyes. Not only ears that listen, but eyes that weep. Eyes that that grieve with Mary and Martha. And the Greek word found in, in verse 33, as well as verse 38, where it talks about Jesus groaning. It has the idea of being angry over something. Jesus was not just grieving, he was angry, um, is the idea there. And this groaning was one of frustration, not in a victim kind of way, but a frustration of what sin had caused, its consequences. He felt very strongly, and we see him evidencing that with his eyes, seeing what they see, seeing it through their eyes, and then weeping. This is the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament, is, is John eleven thirty five, 35. And it is really the opposite extreme of 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice evermore. Jesus weeps, rejoice evermore. And so we see this, this extreme uh, empathy on Jesus' part, willing to be where these ladies were and to process grief through the lens of their experience. And so the eyes of the one who saw and pronounced his initial creation very good probably felt more strongly than anybody, the anger and the, the grief of what death was causing in this moment. We almost get used to death. We hate to admit that. We often will say at a funeral, well, that's the cycle of life. That's, that's part of life. No, it's not. <laughs> not originally. And Jesus knows what it's like to just have life and it to be very good. And so we see this grief on his part on behalf of these two ladies. The life knows what it's like to live under the shadow of death. He lived on this planet. He experienced what we often experience. Where are you today in need of stopping the resentment of an at-arm's-length Jesus for the one who wants to come close to you with intimate empathy, to listen, to see things, to help you shoulder what he currently has you waiting upon. Last thought, we'll move to our second point today. Saw a picture of a bunch of surfers off of the the coast of California. Josh is out sick. He's not surfing on the West Coast today. For those who know, he's, I think, right? He's sick, Rachel? Okay, good. Um, I mean, not good. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) sorry, Josh. But there's a picture of a bunch of surfers, and they got their wetsuits on, they're sitting on their boards, and they're just waiting for the next wave. And the the caption underneath the picture was this, patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. Can I tell you today, the things we're waiting upon God for are only going to sweeten when the wave comes. When we crest that and and we experience life in all of its abundance, this isn't me just trying to give you something good to feel about or something to feel good about today. It is going to occur. When we crest that wave, all the waiting, all the just treading water is going to be worth it. And so don't feel like your waiting is pointless. Don't feel like God's just messing with you. The life would say otherwise. Jesus has a loving purpose in that delay. He has an empathetic profile toward us. All right, number two. Let's talk for a few minutes about not only life that delays, but number two, life that liberates. Life that liberates. And this is just incredible. Pretend you didn't know this story. Pretend you're in this moment, thinking you're attending a funeral and something else is about to occur. As I mentioned, we've had some health things this last week, and I had a pretty bad eye infection. If, if my eyes look a little red today, I'm not angry, okay? Uh, that I know of anyway, um, but uh, I had eye infection in both eyes, and uh, one morning earlier this week, I literally, my eyes, I could not open them. They were just matted shut, not to be overly gross, but just to push back lunch a bit in your mind maybe, um, and I had, I had, you know, been on antibiotics, and I just took a hot, as hot as I could bear on my skin and just laid that across my eyes to try to, I literally just stumbled, felt my way to the bathroom. It was, it was that bad. I could not see, couldn't get my eyes open. And I was thinking just week as I was, you know, we get a prescription and we deal with things. What did people used to do? Well, before antibiotics, how did they process things? How, how, they just wrote it out and didn't even know what they had. Aren't you thankful that everything this world throws at us, that someday we're gonna be free of it? Not not just the the, the eye infection thing that I was inconvenienced by for a few days this week. I'm talking chronic things. I'm talking things we're stuck with the rest of this life. Someday we are free because we follow the life. We follow the resurrection. And So anything that is moving in the wrong direction will one day be reversed. And without the life, everything in our lives is irreversible. We're, we're going down. We're going further away from everything we long and crave. And so through Jesus, we have liberation. And we sang about that just a moment ago. All right, let's talk about a couple of things as it relates to that and the time we have left. Number one draw closer to Jesus' reversible liberty. Draw closer to Jesus' reversible liberty. This liberty that can turn things back, can restore things that seem to be dead and gone. Um, That's a key word today, this reversible liberty that Jesus offers to us. All right, go to verse 38. So Jesus comes again. Here's the word groaning we referenced earlier back in verse 33, this idea of almost anger, not at Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but at death itself. Come to the grave. It was a cave and a stone, Excuse me, a stone lay upon it. All right, we're done. It's over. Let's move on. Verse 39, Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Can you imagine that? Uh, go to the graveside of your loved one. Um, go to the graveside of someone else, and then someone says, "Let's start digging." Okay, well let's let's try to reverse, or let's try to confront this head on. And so we see Jesus willing to reverse some things. All right, two things he reverses. Number one, reversible stones. The stone that had been rolled across this opening, Jesus said, "Let's well, let's move it back to its previous position." Um, typically in this day, tombs would have been cut into the side of a hillside. Typically, limestone uh, would have been the topography of that region, uh, and so it had been a face of a, a, a rock wall and a stone, as we often envision. Even with Christ's own tomb, would have then been placed over the entrance to keep out grave robbers and rodents and anything that would disturb um, the place that the death uh, that the dead one was committed. And so Jesus commands this stone door to be taken away. Do you think anyone in that culture had ever seen this before? No, once that stone closed, that's it. Period, let's all move on. Jesus said, hold on a minute, let's, let's go back. Let, let's reverse, let's play back, let's, let's see this end a different way. And so we see him reversing stones that had sealed this tomb. Jesus commands the onlookers to take away the stone from the mouth of the grave. That's interesting, couldn't have Jesus just said just with the flick of his hand or with a word, move the stone. He required them to do what they could do. They weren't going to be able to do what he was about to do, right? But they could move the stone. And so we see him involving them and engaging them in this process of bringing life where there is death. Verse 40, uh, verse 39, first, after he says that, take you away the stone, end of verse 39, Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord... By this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee that that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. And so Jesus reminds here of what he had said early to her back in verse 25 and 26 that we begin with today, that if she would believe his word, that he is the resurrection and life, God would be glorified. God would do his work. Now, it doesn't say at the end of verse 40 that they commanded, but there's no way that they took back the stone without the permission of Martha and Mary. Mary, are you good with it? Martha, are you good with it? Okay, we'll do what he has said. And so by doing that, by granting permission, they're evidencing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All right, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And so before Jesus does the miracle that most, if not all of us, know he's about to do, he first prays, he acknowledges the Father and the favor of God upon him that would be used to bring about this resurrection. Nowhere do we see the reference to the prayer. We don't know where Jesus prayed this, but earlier somewhere there was inserted this prayer that now is about to be answered um, in this powerful work of Jesus Christ. All right, verse forty-three. We get now to the apex or the, the, the high water mark of the story. And when he had thus when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come forth!" Um, there are very few places in Scripture where Jesus is said to cry out with a loud voice. Um, the cross. Um, We see it a couple of other references, maybe in reference to the temple. There may be an allusion to that there. But this is one of the few instances where Jesus raised his voice. And he raised his voice in order to resurrect uh, Jesus Christ. Some have suggested, maybe you've heard this before, if he had not said Lazarus, all the dead would have come out of the tombs. If he had just said, come forth. Isn't that cool to think about? That's how much power he has, not just to bring one from the grave, but all of us from the grave. Uh, In fact, we see at his resurrection, tombs were opened and saints were seen. That's interesting in Jerusalem after his own resurrection. There's just life around Jesus. And so he cries out in a direct way, Lazarus, come forth. Um, You ever heard this question by especially the skeptics, could God create a rock so big that he can't move it? Have you ever heard that or something similar to that? Can God create a rock so big that he cannot lift it? Um, often this question is asked by skeptics of our God and the Word and Christianity. Uh, if God can create a rock that he cannot lift, then God is not omnipotent would be the premise. If he can't create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, then God is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. So that's the quandary they try to corner us with. Um, one author put this so well of how, how the quick answer is No but then he expounded for just a second. So as we think about God being able to reverse stones, there's no stone too big for him to move. He said this, the explanation, the quick answer is no, but the explanation is far more important to understand than just that simple answer. The first part of the question is based on a false idea that God being almighty means he can do anything. In fact, the Bible itself lists things God cannot do, right? We used to use this in our fair booth ministry here in Wayne County. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. And Some of those kind of things in Scripture. The reason he cannot do these things, the author says, is because of his nature and the nature of reality itself. God cannot do what is not actually possible to be done, like creating a two-sided triangle or a married bachelor. Just because words can be strung together this way does not make the impossible possible. These things are contradictions. They are truly impossible in reality itself. Now, what about the rock? A rock would have to be infinitely large to defeat an infinite amount of lifting power. But an infinite rock is a contradiction since material objects cannot be infinite. Only God is infinite. Therefore, there there cannot be two infinites. He alone is all things. I just want to say this, and I know that's kind of a sidebar for a second. There is nothing that God can't move, including the stones that seal dead people. He, He can move anything, He alone is infinite. the the most infinite level of pain or sorrow we will ever reach is still eclipsed by a God who is infinite. As infinite as it feels to us, it is still finite before He who is uh, infinite. And so this morning, death is not an arbitrary part of life, as we would say. It is unnatural, but it is a necessary part of God's plan of reconciling this fallen world and everyone in it. And so all stones, including headstones, headstones, and the death that causes them are submissive to the one who is in control. Death doesn't just happen. God decrees it. It's still under his control. And so anything that takes life from us is still a part of his purpose and plan. He reverses stones. All right, verse 44. And he, was, and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Number two, jot this down, reversible grave clothes. Do you think when, and I I know we often will give clothes at a, um, I have a cousin who uh, works in the funeral world, and often family will give clothes or something that that person enjoyed wearing or was just associated with them, and they'll put on those clothes. And this day, they would wrap them, um, partly to retard the decomposition process or at least the smell of that. Can you imagine those people as they wound the body of Lazarus, those who had a part in that duty? They never expected a wardrobe change. You know, hey, we noticed you didn't wrap his leg as well as you said you did. You know, I mean, they, they, they really could probably cut any corners they wanted because it was a, a point of no return. And yet through Jesus, there was going to be this reverse of grave clothes. Most of the time, grave clothes, last time I checked, in fact, all times except this one and maybe Christ, they're wound on never to be unwound. And yet, here we see Jesus reversing what had just been done to Lazarus. Um, we don't know for sure how Lazarus came out. The indication seems to be that they were very pretty restrictive. Um, it could be that he just kind of crawled out, or you know, somehow stumbled out. Doesn't seem like anybody helped him out of the grave. Or Jesus just, when he called him forth, gave. I don't know if he hovered or somehow released him. But somehow Jesus brings Lazarus to the the face or the mouth of that cave. And then he turns to those who are dumbstruck, to say the least, and says to them, because they can't say anything, so let's go ahead and give them something to do. Go release him. Go uh, remove these grave clothes. And so we see him raising the dead, but then giving again this task of removing the stone and unwinding the grave clothes to those who were there to participate. Could it be that some of the disciples were there for that moment? Um, some of them were tracking with Jesus. Remember, he says, it's going to be good for you to see this. Maybe all of them were there. You think that maybe came back to their minds on resurrection morning where they didn't do any unwinding and they didn't have any active part, but they see still the remnants of, uh, of the clothing there or the, 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 the grave clothes there in the tomb. And so we see them being a part of and experiencing this powerful resurrecting life of Jesus Christ. See, not only can Jesus as the life free us from the weighty consequences of sin, that's death itself, but even the lingering effects of it. The grave clothes, I think, are a picture of the progressive sanctification um, that that we're putting off more and more of these grave clothes, the things that used to be and still are remnants of our fallenness, and God is sanctifying us and freeing us. Is that happening between you and Jesus Christ? Um, I was talking to my dad about this the other day and I hope you understand the spirit of it, but I noticed that as we age, he and I were not talking of others, we were talking of ourselves. If you notice that as we age, we tend to, if we're not careful, the expression we would use is we let ourselves go. And often we use that in a physical sense. We just, I'm, just, I'm old now or I'm aging and so I'm not gonna take care of myself physically or whatever the case may be. And I was talking and bring up, we also have to work on our attitudes. By default, we, we age into bitter people judgy, gossipy, snipey kind of, that's just how we, we trend. And we were just talking about how do, we, how do we work at that? How do we stay on that? And I think as we age, if we're not careful, we start giving up or letting ourselves go where the power of Christ is still relevant to work in our lives. Do you believe that your best days are behind you? I'm talking in this life, in its current framing, in this body that we're in, or do you think God still has something he wants to do through you? I think a lot of us, it's almost like we're just on this downward spiral. We're not, we don't believe that God can reverse that or work in the midst of that. I had lunch with one of the men uh, in our community here just a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about we were sitting over lunch, and within a few minutes, we got real with each other, talking spiritually. He said, I feel like I just had a reset. God is growing me. I believe I can be more and do more for Christ, and I can walk closer to him. Do you believe a reset is still possible for you? Is this, or is it just, this is what I'm stuck with? If Jesus is alive and can bring people from the grave back to life, then he can bring you from where you're at to something new and fresh and vibrant. Uh, don't settle uh, for just this slow downward spiral that often happens in our lives. Don't believe the lie that you or anyone else is dead and gone. As long as we have access to Jesus, there is hope for a reversal of fortunes. If you and I have access to Jesus, anything can turn. Anything can be renewed. Anything can be reset. Do not settle for less than that faith. One authorized reading said this At this point in your life, if you're a Christian, God has more invested in your life than you do. Think about that. God, at this point, for all of us who know Christ, He has more invested in your life than you do, than I do. Trust me, He knows. He's invested. He cares for you. He longs to work. Uh, in your life. All right, let's spend just a few minutes in time we have left. Draw closer to Jesus, confrontational liberty. So draw closer to him, first of all, in liberty that's reversible or reversing things. Number two, a liberty that is confrontational. I love how Jesus uses this moment to confront his enemies and his doubters and detractors in a way that shuts them up. Uh, Before we look at that, uh, this would be a picture of um, our tour guide when we were in Israel a few months ago and uh, uh, Moshi is his name, and they just had a little daughter. We were down at the. I, this is crazy to even say to you, but we were down on the shores of the Dead Sea, just having a cup of coffee, talking. His wife and him and me and some others that were with us, and she was expecting. They have two little boys. If you remember me talking about them calling him Abba, which was just made you just choke up. Hear Abba, Abba, as they would call call out to their dad. He was our tour guide. He's a Messianic Jew. He believes Jesus is the Messiah, um, and is a believer. But they just had a little girl. They had three kids. And the reason I show the picture today is he was talking to us one day just on the side. He would talk about the sites and where we were going. But then now and then we just got personal, just talking about our own lives and personal information. And he was saying that in Israel right now, um, that the Golan Heights, which is one of the most contested pieces of real estate in the world, probably the most contested, that Israel, who currently, though some would say wrongfully so, they, they have power in that area They're giving free land to Jewish people willing to go there and build a house. And if you know the geography of this region, the Golan Heights literally is at risk on every front. It's right in the the corner of Israel with all kinds of threats from Syria and Jordan and the list goes on. And this young man with his family has already has a lot reserved. And he was telling us about his house he's going to build there. And we're all just sitting there thinking, how many miles again are you from the border? You know, we're going through as Americans all the risk that's involved. But his desire, and he, our nation needs families like me and like us to, to start a family and to, to invest in the region and, and just to see his, his courage and his boldness. And he was in the army for Israel. They all have to serve two years and talked about that, the, the desire to stand. And can I tell you today that the resurrection power of Jesus is not so we can stand up and just do our thing. He raises us to stand for him and to confront that which is opposite of him. And so we see that happening in these last few verses. All right, two things and we're done. Number one, the confrontational influence of this resurrection. Go to verse 47. I love this part. Don't you always love to see the enemies on a full full uh, uh, retreat? We see that here as they're scrambling. Verse 47, then gather the chief priests. They hear about what Jesus had just done. And the Pharisees at council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. What do we? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so he confronts these who were the enemies. Nothing gets those those aligned with the world, the flesh, and the devil scrambling like the tangible reminders that our Jesus is the life and the resurrection. In verse 48, they see him as a threat to their place of influence. Um, I think we have to be careful in how we view our own country and our nation and our government and how that relates to others in our world. I read recently, someone said this, the lure of Christian nationalism, and that's a word thrown out a lot in our day, but where we basically, we get the gospel and Christ confused with our nation of origin. The lure of Christian nationalism is making ourselves at home in a place where we are only pilgrims and strangers. Do you notice here, they're focused on their place, their place of power and influence, and Jesus is raising dead people, (laughs) and they're just focused on how that threatens them. Can I remind us as believers, Jesus is not here, listen to me, to protect our way of life. He's here to give life to all people. He is the resurrection and the life, and America will come and go, and every other nation before and after it, Jesus is still the life. I'm grateful for our land. I'm grateful for our country. But our life ultimately is not derived from here and now, it is derived from He who fills eternity. And so we see Jesus here bringing people back from the dead, and yet those who only, their only power is the threat of death itself are scrambling to process and to protect themselves from this powerful presence. All right, go to verse 49. This is interesting as we finish. One of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest, that same year said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and the whole nation perish not. And then John adds this. This is interesting. This he spake, he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also uh, also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And so we see him, number two, we see this confrontational escalation It escalates. Now they're going to, and we read that in verse 53, they took counsel together to put him to death. Think about that for a moment. So the guy who can bring people back from the dead, the best thing we can think of is to put him to death. (laughs) Okay, good luck with that. And yet the world has been convincing themselves ever since that they can still win, including the devil himself, win against the one who cannot be killed, the one who cannot be committed irreversibly to the grave. And so this escalation that happens because the Jesus we follow is life. Can I just remind us this morning, as we do pass out Easter invites, I hope you'll participate in that. And as we minister to folks in our community, that there are forces that hate what Easter says. Easter, (coughs) for us, is an anthem. Others view it as an attack. We're claiming belief that our Jesus and our Savior has come back from the grave. And so maybe we'd be prepared for that in the days ahead. All right, let's end in Hebrews 2. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 2. I went just one minute too long here. We'll finish. Hebrews 2. Some of you would contest that maybe a bit. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. <coughs> and I love these verses that remind us of what God has given us in Christ Hebrews 2 verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of <coughs> excuse me, of flesh, flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. I love that. That is the devil. Here it is, verse 15. And to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The raising of Lazarus is not an isolated marvel. It's not an isolated case. The resurrection of Lazarus is a decisive example and an open symbol of Jesus' conquest over death and hell in general. It's available not just to Lazarus, but to your name and my name and everybody we know, and we can be free from the fear of death. May I end with this question today, how do you feel about death? How do you feel about death? And obviously our feelings are framed by our thinking and our philosophy, and I think that reveals today where we're at in relation to Jesus Christ. If I'm fearful in an unproductive way, nothing wrong with a respect of those things that threaten to kill us and to, to hurt us and harm us, But if you're not free of the fear of death, you and Jesus need to close some gaps. And I'm telling you, when you're free of the fear of death, that's when you're free indeed. That's when you're fellowshipping with our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today.